Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Treason of Isengard. We're in class eight now, having just passed a super exciting moment uh, last week when we saw not only the first draft of the Briz of Casa Doom, but then also the very first um, uh, voyage, right? The very, very first trip to Mount Doom and the cracks of Doom. Uh, it was all about the Doom last week. So that was that was uh, really, really fun. Um, that chapter, like the, um, the, I'm forgetting the title of it now, the view forward from Moria, I forget what it is. Anyway, the one after the, the, the Bridge of Khazad Doom, the one we were looking at at the end last, the story foreseen from Moria. Thanks, James. That chapter, I don't think we have had a single chapter in the entire, uh, the entire history of Middle-earth series so far that has been so discussion rich like i i mean every single word of that chapter i want to talk about um it's uh unbelievable that uh, just so exciting to see that um you know and i think in, in in some ways because the because the first part of the story grew so gradually and in a sense kind of piecemeal right you know like starting off as the hobbit sequel and then the black riders come in and everything changes right and then baron and luthien comes in and things change again and you know so i mean it it, it was that you know that sort of succession of you know like the uh, covering the same ground again and again and tweaking and changing and developing whereas this was just like this huge wave of new stuff which was so cool and so interesting to talk about so we're going to come back to the finished we're going to spend most of the time today finishing the second half of that chapter and then we're going to look at the Lothlorien chapter uh getting down towards uh Galadriel we'll spend more time of course on Galadriel next uh, week when we do the uh, uh, the the Mirror of Goadriel chapter, but we finally invent Goadriel this week, so it's another really important day, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, um, I almost um, my my I was tempted. The title I was tempted to give this uh, this class uh, had this class really just been on that first Lothlorien chapter, um, I would have called it Lothlo- uh, uh, Lothlorien without the Queen. Uh, but uh, I didn't want to title it that because I want to make sure we're going to probably spend most of the time talking about the War of the Ring section. So anyway, um, okay. So uh, but before before we um, we get started. One quick announcement that I want... Okay, two. Two two quick announcements that I wanted to make sure to uh, let everybody know about. First, um, we have a regional event coming up. So, uh, you know, you've heard in the past, of course, you've heard me talk about Mythmoot, our big annual conference, uh, which happens uh, in... uh, uh, Leesburg in Virginia. Um, so it's like pretty central to a lot of America, but there's a lot of America and the rest of the world that we, it's, you know, no, everybody can't get there. So one of the things that, uh, that Signum has really been working on over the last few years and which we're really beginning to put into place this year is more regional events to do sort of smaller one day or weekend conferences in different places so that we can, you know, get to get get more people who don't have the opportunity to travel that far, uh, more of an opportunity to get together and have that kind of, uh, you know, the sort of the 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 mini myth moot experience. So um, anyway, so this year we had, so our very first one of these now we've done this kind of thing in the mid-atlantic region before um but of course the mid-atlantic region when con- where conferences are concerned the mid-atlantic region is like our old stomping ground right uh so we're doing our first one of those outside the mid-atlantic region uh and that's coming up in just um uh just 
a month, actually, in October on Columbus Day weekend. Uh, we are, let's see, where are we here? Here we are. Okay, I'll share that over here. Um, it's going to be in the Midwest. So our first, our first uh, uh, re- uh, other regional conference there is going to be in the Midwest. It's located in Iowa, in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, we have uh, a, a friend and colleague, uh, Robert Steed, who teaches there uh, at uh, Hawkeye Community College in Waterloo, Iowa. And when he first suggested this to me, I- I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. When he first suggested to me that we do a regional conference in Iowa, I've never been to Iowa before, and I'm like, Iowa? Like... Who's in Iowa, <laughs> right? Like that doesn't seem. That doesn't, but then, of course, I looked at the map and I'm like, "Wow, okay." So Waterloo, Iowa, is actually just a couple hours away from Chicago and Minneapolis and St. Louis, and so actually, there's a lot of there's millions and millions of people that are pretty close. So it, it only took him about ten minutes to convince me that Iowa is actually like the epicenter of you know America. So uh, that was that was uh, pretty cool. So even if there aren't that many people in Iowa, there are lots of people right around Iowa. So. So um, anyway, if you're anywhere in the Midwest, uh, somewhere uh, around in there, um, then uh, I hope that you'll be able to come and join us. The conference is on Saturday, October 7th. It's just a one-day conference. Uh, If you go to the SignumUniversity.org website and then scroll down a little bit, you'll see this on our events uh, list there. Click on this icon and it'll bring you – this gives you all the events of the the, the, uh, details of the day. Um, it starts at 9 a.m., goes until 4 p.m. Uh, there's going to be lunch provided, so the cost is really cheap. It's $15 for general uh, registration, $10 for undergrads. So if you're an undergrad student, you, it's uh, it's only 10 bucks to come. That 15 or $10 includes lunch also, by the way. So you're going to come. You're going to get lunch. Uh, we're going to have afterwards at 4 o'clock, we're going to go. There's an arboretum right near campus where they have a, a hobbit hole and like a party tree and a hobbit golf and stuff. It's really cool. So, uh, you know, that's kind of awesomely serendipitous. So again, again, I'm like, Iowa, obviously. Like, where's Iowa been all my life? So, um, so that's going to be happening in October. So I hope that... Um, Anybody, um, you know, Stephen, you might be right about that. Stephen's uh, cover thinks that I was confusing Iowa with Kansas. Maybe, maybe I was. And I have to admit, in my, you know, I've lived in a bunch of different places, but pretty much all on the East Coast. I'm, I'm a totally East Coast biased person from a from a geographical standpoint. Um, so, um, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, all the, those Midwest states all kind of run together in my mind, and I, I, I do sort of have, a, have them in a vague jumble in my head. Um, but anyway, so this is going to be this is going to be really cool. Um, and we we do have more regional events coming up uh, in January, January thirteenth, actually, uh, recently confirmed is going to be Texmoot, our first regional event in Texas, down in Fort Worth. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking into um, we're looking into something on the uh, on maybe one or two events possibly out in California. Uh, so we you know may may get out west. Uh, I would love to do an event in Europe. We'll see you know what we can do. Um, but um, yeah, Carson asks, does Hobbit Golf use golf balls or goblin heads? I don't know, but Carson, I do know that it is. Um, it is explicitly inspired by Golfimble's head, so I can't rule out actual goblin uh, crania being used uh, uh, for that. So we'll have to see. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, so this is going to be... Uh, uh, <laughs> James Oakley says that Fort Worth is the largest American city that begins with an F. Well, there you go, right? As if you needed another excuse to come to Texmoot. Um 
But uh, yeah, oh great, Kate. Yes, I saw that you were going to be uh, uh, you were going to be making the uh, the uh, the trip out to to Iowa. So that that's awesome. Um, so anyway, so I hope you, we've got a bunch of people signing up. Uh, it's a it's a great opportunity. Again, if you live a, a drive away, you know I don't think uh, I don't think as I've said before for regional conferences, you know I don't think you can legally have this much fun for fifteen dollars. So uh, anywhere else. Um, so anyway, I'm. Um, 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 I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm, I've, it'll be my first trip to Iowa, and I can't wait for the event. So I hope that any of you who live in the region and, and might be able to to pop down to Iowa for the day will consider uh, coming to register. Just click on this uh, join this event link uh, up here on the uh, on the web page, and uh, and then it's a simple registration form, and then off you go, and we'll see you there. So that's. It, that's uh, announcement number one. Announcement number two is that our fall fundraising campaign is coming around. The leaves are beginning to turn up here in New Hampshire. The swamp maples are a gorgeous red color, and it, that means it is just about time uh, for our fall fundraising campaign uh, in which we uh, uh, try to help uh, Signum and its Mythgard Institute survive for another year. So it's uh, a great time of year. I always look forward to the campaign. Uh those of you who, of course, have been participating in this for a while will know um, that one of the things, uh, uh, one of the the, the expressions of gratitude uh, that we give to our donors who help to support us uh, is voting rights uh, and nomination rights uh, in the Mythgard Academy. So that, you know, if, for people who are new uh, to this and want to know how we figure out which books to do, this is not just me doing random books. I don't pick these. Uh, these are uh, chosen by the populace, chosen by our uh, uh, by our supporters. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, we we I hope that you will consider uh, supporting us. That uh, we traditionally kicks off at Hobbit Day. We haven't set the official day uh, official day and time uh, for our 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 kickoff event. But it's coming up soon, so just to uh, just to to let you know, we are uh, we're beginning to get ready for that, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we'll have some uh, a few extra special events. I'll be doing some uh, talking about Signum and about Mythgard and uh, and our fundraiser and everything, our institution and our plan and what we do and you know what uh, what donations go to go to fund and things like that uh, during uh, 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 some of our uh, Mythgard Academy sessions during the campaign as well. So you'll be hearing more about that uh, in the future. But uh, just, to, just to, to, to let you know that that's coming up. All right. Well, let's get back to the treason of Isengard here. So you'll remember we just got through the Tolkien's first trip to Mount Doom. Uh, which, of course, is now finally called Mount Doom. Uh, and one thing which is a, which is a, you're sort of reminded of very interestingly here, right? Tolkien still has not uh, changed his plan to have this uh, story end. In, like, remember, Rivendell's still the halfway point, right? So if you think of the six books of The Lord of the Rings, he still thinks he's going to do it in two, right? He still thinks it's going to be one of the volumes that's, you know, of the, of the current, like, so as long as the published Fellowship of the Ring is like kind of what he's shooting for here, uh, still. Um, and you can kind of see that, right? You know, you notice how, um, how little impediment 
there was, um, you know, not only like skipping the entire Ithilien thing, um, but, you know, we go from the crossing of the Dead Marshes through the pass into the mountains, uh, the betrayal by Gollum, which initially just involved, you know, him trying to seize the ring for himself, right? And then um, Frodo and Sam pushing on and uh, Sam coming to the cracks of doom and the Nazgul coming and chasing after him, right? So it all it all happened pretty quickly. And there was a, sort of rumors of a battle. That is, at least we know that the Nazgul were leading the armies out uh, of Mordor uh, and that there was going to be a battle going on at the same time that Frodo... So that, that, that concept of the battle going on uh, out on the battle plane at the same time that Frodo is climbing up the mountain and, and, and approaching the Cracks of Doom was clearly there uh, from the beginning. And you'll recall that one sort of tantalizing reference uh, to the horns in the hills, right? The, uh, the, the, the horsemen coming down. Probably the Rohirrim, as we know the Rohirrim are the horse lords, right? He's already called them that. Um, but he didn't use either... He didn't call them the Rohirrim. He didn't mention Rohan. Uh, he didn't call them the horse lords. So it's not 100% sure that that's who it was, but it seems likely that that's the concept he had there. Um, but, um, but yeah, see, Tony, I agree. Tony says, if you totally skip over all the stuff with the three hunters and stay only with Frodo and Sam, it's not unreasonable to do it in one long book. Right. And the problem, of course, is he's not just going to stick with Frodo and Sam. Um, he's still, of course, the other dudes have other things to do. And that's what we're going to be primarily looking at uh, through the sort of the, 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 the first bulk of the, of the class here. Uh, his having, get, having gotten them to Mount Doom what is he, uh, uh, what's he now going to do with the rest of the people, right? That's his, uh, that's his other, uh, his other big question. Um, and, uh, and Brian, I agree the the Frodo and Sam side of the story does get pretty well developed. I agree when you compare the Frodo and Sam outline, right, that he makes to the Minas Tirith side outline, uh, the Frodo and Sam one is much, much closer. I mean, there's going to be more things, right? Again, the, you know, the whole Ithilien thing, the whole Faramir thing, um, the trip through Minas, you know, around Minas Morgul, the stairs of Kirith Ungol, the Shelob encounter, uh, you know, Shagrat and Gorbag. There's going to, you know, there's, there's so much that, you know, that's going to be worked out and added, but still as an overall trajectory, right? You know, uh, a, a bunch of that outline c- could still kind of work, right? If, if, assuming, you know, you're okay with skipping many other things. Whereas the shape of the story um, on the Minas Tirith side is much more fundamentally different, of course, especially uh, with the Boromir angle, uh, as we'll see. But let's not get um, uh, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. Um, and yeah, Nancy, I agree. It is pretty clear that the Frodo and Sam part is the primary story, as makes all kinds of sense, right? All kinds of sense in two ways. First of all, I mean, this has been the story of. Frodo's quest in the story of the ring, right? So naturally, you know, when he's thinking about the story, that's the story, right? And the second thing is, you know, Nancy, in a sense, you come you come at that question from another direction, right? And say, well, what on earth, why on earth wouldn't it be, right? What possible argument could there be for the other side of the story to rival the Frodo and Sam side of the story? And the answer, from the point of view of the published story, the answer to that question is the Return of the King plot, right? That, you know, the uh, and think about how Tolkien does the title in the Red Book, 
right? When we finally get the full title, and I love the full title in, in the Red Book, right? Of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king as told by the little people, etc., etc., right? But those two things get equal billing in the title of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king, right? So, Nancy, when that is in put, but notice the return of the king still not there. Uh, and, and, you know, we mentioned this before when we were looking at the Aragorn story as that was, uh, as that was uh, coming about, you know, but when we spent that time before looking at the way that he was fleshing out the backstory of the Numenorians and Ondor, still not Gondor yet, um, then, you know, one of the things that was so interesting there is that it's not yet really a question of... Um, the, you know, sort of destined and long-awaited return of a king. Uh, and as we'll see, that's still not even necessarily uh, necessarily on the cards yet. So, okay. Let's, uh, without further preamble, let's jump back into things. So you'll remember the very last, the end of the very last slide, we had that touching moment where uh, uh, Sam, the very first idea of how, you know, so that the, the, the initial concept when... Frodo gets to the cracks of doom. One thing which is consistent from the very beginning, Frodo is not throwing in the ring, right? There is no version of the story in which Frodo succeeds in his quest, just gets to the cracks of doom and plunks the thing in the fire, right? Not going to happen, never happens, doesn't happen. Um, And the first time he just fails, Gollum seizes the ring, and but then how does Gollum get in the fire? Impulse number one, Sam comes up at that moment, grabs Gollum, and the two of them fall in the fire so that Sam sacrifices his own life in order to destroy, in order to bring about the destruction of the ring. And some of you uh, like that. I like that ending. I mean, oh, man, that would be so sad. But um, um, but it's uh, it's still... Awesome, right? I mean, now we move on. As he's thinking more through, okay, Sam. What about Sam? What does Sam do? Okay. All right. Um, Sam could get hold of the ring. Frodo betrayed by Gollum and taken by orcs to Minas Morgul. They take his ring and find it is no good. They put him in a dungeon and threaten to send him to Barad-dûr. How can Sam get hold of Ring? He keeps watch at night and hears Gollum muttering to himself words of hatred for Frodo. He draws his sword and leaps on Gollum, dragging him off. He tries to, insert, utter, horrible words over Frodo, incantation of sleep. A spider charm, or does Gollum get spider's help? There's a ravine, a spider's glen, and they have to pass, they have to pass at entrance to Gorgoroth. Gollum gets spiders to put spell of sleep on Frodo. Sam drives them off, but cannot wake him. He then gets idea of taking ring. He sits beside Frodo. Gollum betrays Frodo to the orc guard. They are overwhelmed, and Sam knocked Silly with a club. He puts on ring and follows Frodo. A ring from Mazarbal would be useful. All right. Um, first things first. Okay. Sam could get hold of the ring. That's where he begins this new line of thinking, right? Um, Sam himself taking up the ring. That concept comes in right on the the cusp of the crack of doom, right? Um, the first time when he doesn't actually get hold of the ring and gets hold of Gollum who has hold of the ring and, and, and they both tumble in. Um, 
But no, so we have the idea of Sam himself becoming a ring bearer somehow and to some extent. So the betrayal by Gollum, notice, uh, begins to evolve in a couple, um, in a couple different ways, right? That's interesting. Kate says, reading this one cannot help but think of a soldier throwing himself on a hand grenade to save his comrades. It is almost like that. The, the Sam hurling himself and Gollum into the cracks of doom, um, is, uh, is very like that, I think. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, several of you, um, several of you are puzzled by the third sentence in this paragraph, and I totally, I'm with you. Let's, okay, but, but hang on a second. Okay, concept first. The betrayal. Remember in the first, the first draft of the betrayal, right, the first sketch notes, by betrayal, it means first, first and foremost, it means he turns, Gollum turns on Frodo and tries to to take the ring from him, right? But after they beat him off, he goes running off and he betrays them to the Nazgul. Remember, there's the Nazgul leading the armies and Gollum comes herring out. Notice how how totally geographically sketchy that whole sequence is, which again, bears out the observations we've been making all along, right? Tolkien is not thinking in, he's not, he, he's, he's not holding a map in his head when he's devising story, right? When he's outlining story. Um, many of the movements in that first outline are utterly implausible. Like the, the speed with which they seem to happen, right? The amount of distances uh, covered, especially Gollum running out to alert the Nazgul, running and waving his hands and the Nazgul coming in and seeing him and, and coming in and then Frodo going to Mount Doom while they're flying in. It's really hard to see how all of that stuff would work, right? Um, and, uh, Kate, I agree. His map does seem to, it does expand as the story expands, right? As he, you know, he writes the story and the, and, and fleshes out the story and its details and the map seems to grow with that. Um, anyway, so that's the first betrayal, sort of the two concepts attached to the betrayal idea in that first go through. Now, um, we have the betrayal to orcs leading to Frodo's capture, which is this, that, that element is brand new here. So, okay, so what if Frodo's going to get captured, right? So if Gom's going to betray him, not have him, like, let's not have him run many miles out and report directly to the Nazgul, right? Let's have him just betray them to orcs who are nearby, leading to Frodo's capture. I have no idea, as several of you, <laughs> several of you are asking, in what sense is the ring no good? Uh... Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, Stephen Cover is wondering if uh, if that means it has an expiration date and it's gone off. Um, I have no idea what that means. They take his ring and find it is no good. No good to what? Find it's no good to... to or what? Find it's... Uh, um, it's no good to take it? The ring itself isn't any good? I... They put him in the dungeon and threatened to send him to Barad-dûr. But they have the ring? See, and I, that's, I, I assume that that's in fact what it means. That the orcs take the ring... Um, the orcs take the ring from Frodo, right? Because notice he says afterwards, how can Sam get hold of ring? Presumably, if orcs get the ring... 
and will presumably send it to, you know, Sauron, right? I'm thinking that's probably what they're going to do. Then how does Sam get it? Um, so the concept of this, I, my reading of this, my reading of this is, uh, that, um, a couple of you are suggesting that maybe Sam substituted a fake, uh, possibly, but I don't know. Cause, okay. I, there are two, two reasons that I'm hesitant about that interpretation. Reason number one. Um, reason number one is there's no indication that he substitutes a fake, right? That there's any swap. It's just a, just, he, you know, he gets hold of the ring. Um, and the second thing is that still that phrase, they find it's no good. is still would still, it seems to me a weird way to say that, right? I mean, if it's a fake and they discover that it's a fake, you'd think he'd say something like that, Like right? They discover it's not the real ring or something like that, but it's no good. That's, I mean, maybe that's what he means by that, but it just strikes me as a kind of an odd way to say it. And I don't think that the separation here, like Sam could get hold of ring. I don't think that that necessarily predates like first Sam gets hold of ring. Then Frodo is betrayed by Gollum and taken by orcs to mean his Morgul. And they find his ring is no, I don't take that as sequential in that way. I take the first sentence as a topic sentence. Sam gets hold of ring. Here's how Sam gets hold of the ring. First, Frodo is betrayed by Gollum and taken by orcs. They get his ring and it's in some sense, no good for them. Um, they chuck him in a dungeon then Sam still has to get hold of the ring, as was suggested in that first sentence, which is why he goes on to say, how can Sam get hold of ring? Right? So um, I, I think that, again, I think that's topic and expansion on the topic rather than a, seri- a, a chronological series. At least that's how I read that paragraph. Um, Brianna, that's the reading of It's No Good that I'm, um, that I'm leaning towards, which is that it doesn't work for orcs. Right? Um, and, you know, that actually seems to me quite plausible, actually. I think that, um, I think that that could work, well, let me say, in a different way. I think that makes sense. Uh, the ring is all about dominion, right? And orcs, by their, literally by their nature, I mean, from their making, uh, are slaves, right? They're, they are, they are the dominated, they, not the dominators. Um, so that the ring wouldn't work, that they couldn't do anything with it, that it wouldn't affect them in any way. Um, I could see that happening, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it must be the real ring that he has and that the orcs get. And then he's like, but wait a second, how is, uh, how is Sam going to get it? So then when he goes, he's kind of coming in, um, coming in again, right? Um, how can Sam get hold of the ring? So, okay, reset. He keeps watch at night and hears Gollum muttering to him. So here, I think we're going back, right? This is this is a second pass at the Sam gets hold of the ring concept, right? Okay, all right, let's come in again. He keeps watch at night and hears Gollum muttering words to himself, words of hatred to Frodo. So Sam, in this new version now, Sam is anticipating the betrayal, right? Okay, so 
so you see now we have the the birth of the Sam is actively distrustful of Gollum more so than Frodo theme, right? Okay, so that's that's coming into the story here. Fine. He draws his sword and leaps on Gollum, dragging him off. So this is now Sam rescuing Frodo from being betrayed. So this is the moment of betrayal. He tries to, and I assume this is Gollum trying to and not Sam. Uh, he tries to utter horrible words over Frodo. Um, incantation of sleep. So Gollum is trying, is trying to cast a spell uh, to make Frodo sleep. That's presumably what he was doing when, uh, when Sam dragged him off, right? Okay. A spider charm, which is really interesting. So Gollum, what, learned a charm from spiders that he's trying to use um, on Frodo, I guess, is what that means there? Or does Gollum get spider's help? There is a ravine, a spider's glen. They have to pass at entrance to Gorgoroth. You see that the idea is developing, right? Um, notice the train of Tolkien's thought here. I find this particular train of thought really fascinating. Gollum muttering an incantation of sleep. Incantation of sleep. Spider charm. Help from spiders. Ravine. Spider's glen. That they have to pass through. Gollum gets spiders to put spell of sleep on Frodo. You can see how he ties those things all together. Then, Okay, no, no, no. So make the... Remember, he said nothing about the pass. There was going to be a pass, and, you know, presumably he never intended to make the pass open and easy and simple for them to go through, but when he initially went through it super fast, he didn't mention anything about obstacles in that pass, right? So, okay, no, spiders, right? Yeah, let's fill it with spiders. And as several of you have pointed out, clearly, clearly, plural, spiders here. And I don't see any reason. Um, I don't see any reason why we should not be thinking of hobbit spiders here, right? I mean, when he's talking about spiders, um, this seems to be that's the model, right? I mean, what other model do we have? The only other model that we have are the spiders in Arid Gorgoroth, right? The spiders in uh, uh, North of Doriath in the Silmarillion tradition, but they're not actually originally different. Um, they're going to become different, but they're not yet really different. Um, so yeah, spiders in the Silmarillion tradition, spiders in the Hobbit, pretty much six of one, half a dozen of another. So, okay, so so this is a cool idea. All right, now, nice. So when the, in order to get into Mordor, they have to pass through a ravine that's chock full of spiders, and the spiders are going to put Frodo to sleep. And Gollum's in league with the spiders. So now Gollum's treachery is escalating. And not only escalating, it's getting um, non-traditional, right? Simplest form of treason, go after Frodo and try to seize the ring yourself. But as soon as he starts to make him do the incantation of sleep... It, it goes sideways, right? And now he's not just betraying them to orcs and having them uh, having Frodo kidnapped into Minas Morgul. Gollum, I mean, he's no, no longer doing that. Now he's got spider allies, right? Something different. And the spiders are going to put Frodo to sleep. Sam's going to rescue him, right? Sam drives off the spiders. Notice, notice now the parallel, right? The parallel, Sam, this parallel for Sam, right? Or the precedent for Sam, who does Sam look like in that scene? 
Gollum gets spiders to put spell of sleep on Frodo. Sam drives them off. Who does uh, who does who does Sam rem- exactly? He's like Bilbo. Who is he like in the published book? At the end of the Two Towers, who is uh, who is Sam compared to? Do you remember? When he's fighting Shiva. Yes, Kimber, Arthur, Stephen, Jennifer, Brandon. You've got Turin. Turin Turinbar, he's compared to. And when his uh, when he's stabbing this, you know, when he's trying to slash the spider, and you know, not even if uh, and of course the stabbing up underneath, just like Turin Turinbar and Klaurung. Um so the parallel for Sam is Turin Turinbar. Uh, but here it's not, right? It's Bilbo. Clearly, Bilbo. As a bunch of you are saying, just as Bilbo comes in and drives the spiders away from the dwarves uh, who are bound up and rescues them, so uh, Sam is going to come in and he's going to pull a Bilbo, um, and uh, uh, and he's going to um, he's going to he's going to rescue Frodo. Okay. Um, No, Arthur, Sam, and Rosie are not related. The, the parallel doesn't go that far, fortunately for Sam. Um, okay, then he then gets idea of taking ring. So you see, we've gotten around to Sam could get hold of the ring now from a completely different angle, right? We no longer have orcs take the ring and, and then you have a problem. How is Sam going to... Rather a tall order for Sam Gamgee, isn't it? To break into a tower full of orcs and seize the ring of power from them before they can send it off to Sauron, right? Um, but uh, anyway, and yes, for those of you who said that Baron was a parallel for, for Sam, you're not wrong either. He is a parallel uh, uh, for Baron and even Luthien, you could argue. But um, anyway... Um, uh, so, sorry. Anyway, okay. So, but, so again. So now Sam's going to take the ring when Frodo is put to sleep. So he's 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 cast into sleep, and Sam can rescue him, but he can't get him out of the sleep. He can't break him out of the enchanted sleep. Oh, wait a second. We've done this story before too, haven't we? Who does Frodo sound like? Yes, Stephen. Frodo's bumber now, right? Cast into an enchanted sleep from which they can't rouse him, right? Um, now, again, I'm not saying, I'm not identifying, I'm not saying it's identical, but what I what I do notice here, this is a very Tolkienian pattern, right? This is a very uh, Tolkien-like, not just to repeat himself, but to have these echoes within the stories, to have to, these, ki- these kinds of parallels. Tolkien loves these parallels. He loves uh, uh, sort of recycling these ideas, I've made an argument in the past that the, uh, uh, sort of the metaphor that I use to, to talk about these is typology, actually. It's like a, a typological uh, uh, relationship between the earlier one and the later one. Um, I don't want to get too much into that argument again, but uh, oh, cool. Both Matthew and Brian were wondering if uh, uh, Frodo's like the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Hey, maybe. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. He sits beside Frodo. Gollum betrays Frodo to the Orc guards. So now we have Gollum betraying them again. 
um, the orc, the orcs still are going to, so, so he still wants the orc capture, but now notice he's, he's maneuvered it, right? Now that we have the spiders and the enchanted sleep, and that is the moment when Sam's going to take the ring. So Sam's already taken the ring, so the orcs are not going to get the ring and find it's no good, whatever exactly that means anymore, right? So he's going to be captured by, Frodo's going to be captured by orcs, Sam's going to put on the ring, and wearing the ring, follow the orcs as they pursue him. Um, they are overwhelmed. But it's not, yeah, hang on a second, right, I'm skipping things, right? Sam is knocked silly with a club. Um, somebody, it was a while back, so I don't remember, um, uh, was saying that that phrase, knocked silly, sounds particularly kind of odd, uh, uh, tone-wise, in this passage. And I agree. Um, but that's a kind of a shorthand, I think. I mean, that's... Um, this is remember these are just notes Tolkien's writing for himself, right? He never intended these things to be published. Uh, to me, what that means is like that's the phrase that Tolkien uses himself, right? You know, when he's making notes for himself, uh, that's um, uh, that's that's the way he talks about it. And it does. I agree, Arthur. It does sound like Hobbit style, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, after he gets knocked silly, then he puts on the ring and follows Frodo after Frodo's been taken away. Okay. Brandon asks, what does Tolkien mean by a ring from Mazarbal would be useful? Darn it, Brandon, I was just going to ask you that question. Uh, so what do you think? What does the... What does Tolkien mean by a ring from Mazarbal would be useful? Because I haven't the faintest idea what Tolkien means by that. Um, Christopher kind of brushes that off, right? Uh, let me see if I can uh, if I can if I can find it. I didn't put the note. I didn't include the note on the slide. Let me see. If I can just look this up quick. Um, let's see. So a note from Mazarbo will be so. So that's note six. And yeah. So Christopher says the ring from Mazarbo evidently refers back to what is said earlier. They take Frodo's ring and find it is no good. Uh, really? I don't understand. I don't... I'm not following Christopher's thinking here. I- I'm not saying he's wrong. It's much more likely that I'm being dense, but I don't even understand what Christopher means by that. Um, because this does not sound to me anything like they take his ring and find it is no good. And first of all, that's not happening, right? It's Sam who has the ring, not the orcs. Second of all, we're talking about a ring that would be useful, not a ring that wasn't useful. That's kind of the opposite of what he was saying in the other sentence, even if it were the orcs we're talking about, which it's not. Um, for whom would a ring from Mazar? What is a ring from Mazarbal, for crying out loud? To whom would it be useful? In what way would it be useful? I don't know the answer to any of those questions. Um... Stephen Cover says, well, when wouldn't a ring from Mazarbal be useful? A, fi- a fine question. A fine question. Um, oh, well, you guys still want the decoy ring. Okay. Okay. Um, several of you are suggesting it as a decoy. Yeah, Tara wants it to be a decoy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Matthew wants it to be a decoy. Um, (sighs) 
Hmm. Yeah, see, I agree, Kate. I agree that Tolkien is very much thinking out loud here. Um, Brandon says, I think Christopher thinks it's a decoy. Maybe. I still hold that the decoy theory doesn't make much sense. That is, I don't see much justification from this passage for the decoy theory. And if, as Christopher suggests, this sentence in parentheses here refers back to this the ring is no good sentence earlier on, then it makes less sense to me than otherwise, right? Because... There is no room in this first paragraph for a decoy ring. There is no room in that first... So remember, this is like two versions of, this, of the story, right? The first shorter version and the second longer version. In that first shorter version, there's no decoy. There cannot be a decoy. Sam needs to get hold of the ring, and the whole problem is, how can he get hold of the ring when the orcs have it? It is clearly the real ring and not, um, and not a, a decoy ring that, that, that the orcs have. Right, so if indeed that sentence a ring from Mazarbo would be useful is referring back to that sentence, then it can't be referring to a decoy because there's no decoy in that first paragraph. I can't even understand how it could be a decoy. I mean, I I I get you know those of you who are pro decoy are arguing that that's what find that it is no good means. But I don't under I don't follow that. I mean I'm I I I I see what you're saying, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. And as I said before, there are two reasons I don't believe it. It there's never there's not a hint anywhere of any ring substitution that Sam is pulling here. So we have no reason to think that he's not talking about the real ring, especially since in the next paragraph he's asking the question, how can Sam get hold of ring as if he's puzzled? What this sounds like is he has this initial idea but hits a wall. Right? And the wall he hits is, but hang on a second. I want Sam to get hold of the ring, but the the way I just did this, I can't see how Sam could do it. Because the orcs have it, the real ring, not a decoy. Right? There's no decoy in that first sequence. So he's like, okay, hang on, I'll do it again. And that's where we now we're doing spiders, and now we're doing comatose Frodo, right, under a sleep spell, and Frodo not having the ring. And it's clear that there is not a decoy. There's, I don't, I mean, again, I don't see it. Sam has obviously the real ring. He uses it. He puts it on and follows Frodo, right? So again, to whom would a ring from Mazarbal be useful? Maybe he would put the ring on Frodo. If he got a ring, picks up a ring from the chamber of Mazarbal and puts it on Frodo, like plants it on Frodo so that they think it's the real ring, right? So that they find a ring. Okay, maybe, I mean, like, I can, it's, again, it's not that I can't see that, but A, I don't see much justification for that, other than just a wild guess at what a ring from the Zarbal could be, and two, um, I still don't understand exactly what the use of it is, you see? Um, uh... Again, like, be useful in what's... I don't see what use is going to be performed 
by planting a fake ring on Frodo in that case. Um, now, several of you are asking about... Um, several of you are asking about dwarf rings. Because, of course... That's the other straw we have to grasp at in trying to understand that last sentence, right? Um, a ring from Mazarbal. Okay, we're talking specifically about a ring obtained in Moria. That's literally the only thing we know for sure about that ring, right? Um, so it is certainly worth asking, as several of you are, um, uh, are, are, are asking, could this be a dwarf ring? Like one of the dwarvish rings of power. What is the fate of the dwarvish rings of power? help me remember. Or those of you who have more leisure at this moment than I do, look it up uh, in the index. What happened to the dwarf rings? Last, I know that I remember very clearly that the elf rings have gone across the sea, right? Um, That's still the last that we know of the elf rings is that they were made by Sauron still to ensnare elves. They're special rings, especially powerful rings, but still made by Sauron to ensnare elves, and they've been sent over the sea to Valinor. Okay, fine. Um, uh, And the dwarf rings, does Sauron have them back? See, Josiah, my problem is I'm I'm I don't agree that useful as a fake. Like to be used as a fake, I don't see like would be useful that again, I, it's like conceivable that that could be the use that it's being put to, but I see no compelling reason to think that that's the use that is that it is being put for. I mean, I see nothing in anything on this slide that implies a decoy being used at any point. I, I just, I don't see any suggestion of that. Um, again, like, if you start with the idea that we want to have a fake decoy ring, then sure, yeah, a random ring from the Chamber of Mizarbo might be useful for that. But I don't see how simply saying a ring from Mizarbo would be useful implies uh, that it's uh, that it's a decoy. Um... Okay, several of you are suggesting that the Dwarvish Ring could be useful to make Sam invisible if the One Ring is not available to him. Right. Except in the previous sentence, it was available to him. He was just using it. He puts on the ring and follows Frodo in the sentence before. Right. And I know Kate thinks I'm making too heavy weather of this. I'm thinking about it too hard. I know, I mean, it's hard when... When Tolkien's just kind of tossing off ideas like this, I absolutely agree, Kate, with the premise that he's just thinking aloud and running through ideas here. Totally agree. They don't have to be, especially this thing in parentheses, it doesn't have to, this could be an alternative version, right? Um, He could be putting forward, hey, what if instead of using the one ring, Sam's using a ring of Mazarbo here, whatever that is, right? Maybe a dwarf ring, maybe something else. Um, That... Entirely possible. I definitely, I definitely see that as a as a as a possibility. Um, oh, that's interesting. 
uh, Carson is suggesting maybe uh, if they had two rings that could make you invisible, then of course Sam could use one and, 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 and let Frodo use the other, and then they could escape that way. Because remember, the first problem was there are all these orcs, right? So how can Sam get hold of the ring? Presumably we still have, we don't have any indication yet of how we're getting out of the having been captured by orcs, how do we escape thing. Um, see, Josiah, I'm sorry. I just still don't, I do not think it is no good as the revelation of the decoy. I, I, that makes no sense. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying I know for a fact it's not true. I am saying that that makes no sense to me at all. I, I, I just, I cannot see that as the revelation of the decoy. Because again, it's clear in the context of that first paragraph that it is not a decoy. They hate, the orcs have the real ring. That's why there's a problem. How can Sam get hold of the ring? Because they've got the real one, not a decoy. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, um, it's entirely possible. Sauron does have, we know Sauron does have dwarf rings, that he's recovered them. Um, Hang on a second, though. Let's try to remember chronology. Several of you have made reference to the recovery of Thrain's ring. Uh, is that a thing yet? I don't think so. I mean, Thran captured by the necromancer and dying in the dungeons of Dol Guldur, of course, is in The Hobbit, obviously. Um, but, of course, in The Hobbit, all he was really concerned about was the key in the map, right? Um, in... Has he been explicitly connected with the Ring of Power yet? I don't think he has. I mean, that story obviously is very logical once we go there, but I don't think he's gone there yet. Yeah, I agree, Brianna. Whatever he was thinking about the ring from Mazarbal, it's short-lived. The reason I'm spending so much time on this is that that sentence is one of the most tantalizing sentences I've come across, and I am really curious. Let's just think in broad terms. Let's think in broad terms. What are possibilities, right? What are the possibilities of what he could be referring to? Possibility number one, a dwarf ring of power, right? Associated with dwarves in Moria, so we gotta that's gotta be on the table, right? Could be a dwarf ring of power. It could be a normal ring, which Sam somehow and for some reason we're gonna go back and retroactively have him find a ring in the chamber of Mazarbal. I mean it's gotta be the chamber of Mazarbal that we're talking about in Moria, right? And there's stuff in there, right? Dwarf bodies and whatnot, right? Okay. So he found a ring there. Is it a normal ring? Just Sam looting in the ring in the chamber of Mazarbal? Why did he take the ring? Is it not a normal ring? Maybe it's not a dwarf's ring of power. Maybe it's not, not a normal ring. Maybe it does something. Maybe we want to give... Maybe this sentence reflects a brief impulse to give Sam something himself, like some... Remember, he was just Bilbo, right? He was just in the Bilbo role in chasing off the spiders and rescuing Frodo, who has been cast into sleep. So maybe we're going to... That that impulse is to have him stumble upon a magic ring while he is in a place under the Misty Mountains, like Bilbo, right? Um, 
So it could be a dwarf ring. It could be a totally different ring, which is also magical. It could be a totally different ring, which is not magical. Right? Are, is there any other obvious... Uh, any, any other obvious uh, options there that I haven't thought of? Normal ring, dwarf ring of power, non-ring of power, magic ring. Right? Any of them found there in the chamber of Mizarbo. Um And Stephanie, I... The question then arises, how could it be useful. And in this context, remember the context of this sentence is he puts on the ring and follows Frodo. So somehow in his pursuit of Frodo, who comatose Frodo having been captured by the orcs, Sam is in pursuit. Sam needs help. Clearly Sam needs help, right? There is no version of this story in which Sam does not need help when Frodo has been captured by the orcs, right? Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy, the great cliffhanger sentence at the end of the two towers, right? Um, Sam's, Sam needs help. So I, 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 a useful thing would clearly be handy for Sam right now. Um, and that seems to me the most obvious interpretation of would be useful, right? He, he needs something useful either to help him in sneaking in or to help him in defeating the orcs or to help him in getting Frodo out or something like that, right? He needs, he needs help like that. Um, uh, and so I assume that the the um, I assume that the um, the ring of Mizarbo that would be useful in this context is something that he would be wielding. Um, and again, I I I I'm, I find myself still very resistant to the decoy idea, mostly because I don't see how that's useful. Um, I don't see what use it serves to put a decoy ring on Frodo. Not to mention the fact that, again, it's not... That's not the context of this sentence. The context of, like, the usefulness is in the context of his pursuit of Frodo, his rescuing of Frodo. Not of uh, Frodo being captured by the orcs. Right? Um... Ah, okay. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so uh, in the Council of Elrond chapters, um, it uh, it does say that Thran had had the ring. Good. Okay, I couldn't remember if that had come in yet, but yes. Okay, the idea that Thran has the ring uh, and is. And that it must have been taken from him in Dogville. Okay, great. Okay, good. So, so that idea is there. Excellent. Thank you for looking that up. I couldn't remember if that had entered or not. Um, interesting. Yeah, Tony says, maybe this is an early version of the file of, of Galadriel. Tony, that's exactly what this sounds like to me. Again, Sam needs help, right? Sam cannot... I get rather a tall order for Sam Gamgee, as you might say, right? And that's true from the very beginning. He needs some useful things, right, to help him to get in. In the published text, he is going to have the Ring of Power and the File of Galadriel and Sting, right? Those are the three things that he has which are useful to him uh, as he goes. So whatever the Ring of Mizarbal was, um, if I had to guess, I can't think... Dwarvish Ring of Power seems like too much, right? For a couple reasons. Like, A, if they found a Dwarvish Ring of Power there, like, 
surely that kind of has to impact somewhere else in the story, right? And how does Sam end up with it? Does he find a Dwarvish Ring of Power and not mention it, right? Are we imagining Sam Gamgee in the in the, in the the Chamber of Mizarble finding a Dwarvish Ring of Power and hiding it in his deepest pocket saying, now I am a burglar indeed, right? Does, does his parallel to Bilbo start back as far as that? Um uh, not to mention the fact that, like, how, why on earth would a ring of power still be lying around in the chamber of Mizarble? So, I, I, that seems like too much, too much of a strain, too much of a of a radical alteration of the story. Um, if I, so, if I had to absolutely guess, uh, if I was compelled to guess, I would say that uh, um, it's some kind of magic ring. And I say some kind of magic ring seems to fit even just a ring from Mazarble, right? A ring. Indefinite article, right? Um, not the ring of Mazarble or the ring from Mazarble, you know, so um, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking um, magic ring. Generic, like that he finds by chance, like Bilbo finds his ring by chance. Um, that's that's my um, that's my guess. That would be my guess. Um, yeah, Stephen. See, that's that. Um, exactly. Stephen says, "Would Sam want to put on the ring this near the enemy? Maybe, maybe that's why the ring from Mazarbo could be useful because he 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 can't really use the ring of power or th- doesn't want to have to put it on." Now we just because again, and Stephen, notice the parenthetical sentence comes right after he puts on the ring and follows Frodo. Right. Um, so it is exactly in that context. That sounds to me like really good thinking. That seems a very, a very likely uh, possibility. Um, and and yeah, Stephen, as you say, there are, you know, many such magic rings still at large in the world. The number of total magic rings around is still kind of diminishing. But um, uh, but, you know, there's precedent. There's a precedent for it. Um yeah, yeah. Um, you're right, James, that uh, Sam could get hold of the ring is how this starts, but notice that even in his notes here, he's capitalizing the ring of power all the way through. Sam could get hold of the ring. How can Sam get hold of ring? He puts on ring, right? Uh, and it's clear in all three of those cases that it's a ring of power. Um Whereas a ring, lowercase r, is clearly in a different category, so I can't think that there's any any kind of identity there. Um, okay, all right. Um, <laughs> thank you for bearing with me while I was wrestling with that. I I, I uh, I'm not at all convinced that my reading is the best possible reading, but uh, it's I feel better about it than I did before. Okay, Sam comes and uses ring. We're just we're just going with it, right? Um. Th- <laughs> Kimber, just because it's not capitalized doesn't mean it's a decoy. There's no implication that he uses it as a decoy. Anyway, okay. Uh, Sam comes and uses Ring, passes into Morgul and finds Frodo. Frodo feels hatred of Sam and sees him as an orc, but suddenly the orc speaks and holds out Ring and says, take it. Then Frodo sees it is Sam. They creep out. Frodo is unable. Sam dresses up like an orc. They escape, but Gollum follows. It is Sam that wrestles with Gollum and throws him finally in the gulf. How are Sam and Frodo saved from the eruption? Okay. Um, Sam comes and uses the ring. Um, I love 
this scene, right? This scene, uh, like the way that he thinks of this scene. Uh, notice that Frodo mistaking Sam for an orc is much more profound here, right? Uh, in the published text, it, it feels to Frodo like a dream, right? There was an orc and it turned into Sam, right? Um, but there it's like he's, un, you know, he's unable to like process his sudden deliverance, right? Um, the, uh, the hatred that Frodo feels for him, um, those two elements, his anger and hatred for Sam, because Sam has the ring, presumably, right? And, um, his taking Sam for an orc, uh, are connected here, where, again, they're not connected, or rather, they're 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 disjoined there. And they're both both elements are present in the published text, uh, but they get they get separated. Um, yes, Kate, I agree. This is more like the published scene um, with Bilbo. Yes, yes. Um, the, the, in in Rivendell, you mean right when uh, uh, when he see he looks at Bilbo and he suddenly sees you know like uh, Bilbo is sort of transformed uh, in his eyes. Yes. Yes. Um, in fact, Kate, it now seems in retrospect like that that seems to be that moment seems to be what Tolkien is building on. Right. Um, to in the end, use that moment as sort of foreshadowing of this moment with, you know, this much more sort of profound uh, moment of apparent transformation in Frodo's eyes. Right. Of Sam. But then that image of the orc. So he, he, st- he looks like an orc and the orc holds out the ring and says, take it, right? So Sam giving up the... that the, the spell is broken, right? The spell that the ring has cast over Frodo? Boy, that phrase makes me... that wording makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. Um, but, um... Uh, yeah. Let's run with it. Um... So let's say the ring is influencing Frodo to feel hatred and to see him as an orc doesn't say that. Um, but, uh, okay. Anyway, uh, but that it's this sort of almost paradoxical act of humility, right? For, you know, the thing that snaps him out of it is the apparent orc acting generously, self-sacrificially, um, self-denyingly and voluntarily giving up the ring. Um, Think about that, too. No one's ever done that. Ever. Did they? No. Never. No one. No one. And this, of course, is still true in the published text. Um, no one has ever... Sam is the first person ever to hand the Ring of Power over to somebody else. Bilbo gives it up, I know. But Bilbo puts it in an envelope and puts it on the mantelpiece, right? And leaves it for Frodo. I'm not trying to undermine the significance of Bilbo's choice there. But Sam is the only person ever to take the Ring of Power in his hands and place it into the hand of another person and say, you have it, not me. Uh, remember, Bilbo's still really struggling, right? He can't even put the envelope on the mantelpiece. It, you know, his hand jerks and it falls down onto the ground, right? And 
Gandalf is just like, leave it, leave it, leave it there, right? Um, and this is all, this has the feeling, this sentence has the feeling of those, those times in Tolkien's notes where, uh, you know, he'll sort of break into dialogue, right? Or, so, you know, when, when like this, the, the scene kind of like the, the pictures kind of come in, right? And he really sort of sees it and hears the, the lines in his head. That's that snapshot of the, of Sam being mistaken for an orc by Frodo holding out the ring and saying, take it. Um, that's really big. That's really important. The way that that puts the emphasis on that, I think is really, really cool. Um, yes, exactly, Tony, and Sam doing it at this moment with the power of the ring is so great because so close to Mordor. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Very good. Um, and it, it is unclear what Frodo is unable to do. Um, just taking these three little phrases side by side, right? They creep out. Frodo is unable. Sam dresses up like an orc, right? Frodo doesn't dress up like an orc, so one implication is that he's not able to dress up like an orc. Um, he's not able. So, is it the creeping? Is it you know? Does the sentence look backward or does it look forward? Right? Frodo is unable to. I mean, of course, it's easy to remember in the published text what Frodo is unable to do is wear a full set of orc mail, right? So Sam dresses up like an orc, but Frodo can't. Um, uh, yeah, so that 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 seems to be possibly what he's already thinking here, but it's a little difficult to tell. So Gollum is going to. So then we have back on track, right? So now we've we've elaborated the whole thing. Now we have the 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 original betrayal with the help of the spiders, right? Um, the spiders are driven off, and yet their attack succeeds in that they make Frodo comatose, but now we've got him captured by orcs and rescued by Sam, and Sam has taken the ring, and Sam returns the ring, and um, and now we're heading to the Cracks of Doom, right? And so from there, it's pretty much straight to the Cracks of Doom, tracked by Gollum the whole way. Gollum's not going to run off and warn the Nazgul, right? He's coming after him, so that's it. That's, that's new. Um, and it seems a very sensible revision of Gollum's plan, much more like Gollum. Uh, and now Sam is going to, he's not going to jump in himself. He's just going to chuck uh, Gollum into, the, uh, uh, into the, the, the Cracks of Doom. And yes, as I forget who said this earlier. Uh, Kate, I think maybe it was you. Um, thinking about, you know, Tolkien's letters where he calls Sam the real hero of, uh, uh, of, of the story. We can see Sam's profile is, is really increasing, right? Uh, his role in the story. Um, he does notice how the two things that correspond with each other here, right? Um, in the story of Sam and Frodo as it's developed here, Frodo fails twice. Sam succeeds twice, right? Frodo fails to throw the ring in the fire. Sam succeeds in getting the ring in the fire. Attached to Gollum, right? So that's like double bonus. Um, but both of those, that the success and the failure, are both prefigured, or not even prefigured, they're um, prepared for. In advance. Like they're, they're set up by the earlier success and failure, respectively, Um in their relationship with the ring, right? Sam has succeeded in resisting 
the lure of the ring. And that is shown by his giving it, you know, his holding it out to Frodo and saying, take it, right? He's taken the ring, he's kept it safe, he's put it on and everything, right? He's used it, and he gives it up. That success sets up his success at the Cracks of Doom. Frodo, remember, has failed. Not at the Cracks, not just at the Cracks of Doom. He's failed before, right? In using the ring to daunt Gollum, he dooms himself. At that point, the ring regains control over him that was, of which he was healed before, right? We were thinking most likely in Rivendell. Uh, he was cured of that before. Um, so he, and that's why. That's why he can't throw the ring in. Right, because the ring has power over him that he enabled it to have when he used it. So Frodo gives in to the temptation and gives in to the power of the ring and thus fails. Sam resists the power of the ring, gives it up self-sacrificially, and therefore succeeds. That seems to work pretty well, right? Um, so it, it's that seems to be the direction that Frodo's um, that Frodo's thinking there. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, Tomas, absolutely. I agree with both halves of your statement. Yes, clearly it was always in Tolkien's mind that Frodo should fail, and I do agree with your further statement that it does seem to be an indication of how powerful the ring is in twisting people's wills. Again, I don't think, even in this version, where, Tolkien, or where Frodo's failure is emphasized more, right? Um, I don't think that um, there's still... It's like, I don't think he's being super harsh on Frodo um, and, you know, calling Frodo just a failure and a loser. It, it is... You know, he does show how hard it is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's... Uh, oh, that's really interesting. Druid's Fire is saying that uh, Sam is more like Tom Bombadil uh, at this point, you know, when he says, take it. You know, Sam is the master in the sense that the ring has no dominion over him, uh, just like Tom, right? Yeah, I don't know if he fears nothing like Tom Bombadil, but, 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 but yeah, you know, in... Um, that correlation with the lack of the desire to dominate, because George Fire, exactly as you're saying, that's precisely where Frodo failed earlier, right? Um, where he fails is not in putting on the ring. It's not even about possession of the ring. That's not Frodo's mistake. Frodo's mistake, Frodo's fall, comes in his use of the ring to dominate someone else, Gollum, to daunt Gollum, right? That's his, that's the moment. That's the moment, essentially, of Frodo's fall there, of Frodo's failure. Um, whereas, yes, by being uh, uh, not totally non-dominating, right, uh, uh, he, Sam, uh, uh, resists it. Yeah. Um, Tony is wondering if this version diminishes Frodo's courage to even get the ring to Mount Doom in the first place. <sighs> What's interesting to me, Tony, he doesn't talk about it. Now, again, this is just a sketch, right? Um, and so the absence of any references to that certainly doesn't prove that he wasn't going to do that, right? So the question is, is this version going to emphasize how heroic Frodo was? I mean, the published text is really clear. Almost nobody could have succeeded as much as Frodo. No, there was, you know, Frodo didn't succeed, ultimately. Right, he didn't succeed all the way, but nobody else could have come even as close as he did. Right, I mean, so to have brought the ring to the cracks of doom, even if he failed in the at the last, was still an amazing victory. Right, and that that emphasis of the uh, the 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 strength of Frodo's will uh, and of his of his indomitable spirit, 
is heavily emphasized in the story. Um, so I wonder, Tony, I wonder, um, there's no reference to that here. Again, maybe there just isn't because it's such a brief outline. Or maybe that wasn't going to be... Ha- maybe Frodo's own relative success or proximity to success, right, is something that grows in Tolkien's mind as he goes on and revises it. That seems quite possible uh, uh, to me. Um, yeah, yeah. And Tony, exactly. Thinking of Goadriel's subsequent warning that he should not try to use the ring to... Uh, do ring of power type things with it, right? Um, it certainly does seem to kind of follow on what we see here in this uh, outline of of uh, Frodo's the bad results of Frodo basically doing that. Okay, how are Frodo and Sam saved from the eruption? No clue, and that's where he leaves it, right? No clue. What happens to everyone else? Okay. All right, we've worked. We have a working theory now, right? We have a working plot line for Frodo and Sam, and you know it bears a very strong resemblance. Again, so we're still we're still totally missing Athelion, right? Sheila still needs to come into focus. Lots of things, but we're getting there. Now, everybody else, this is where it gets wild. Story turns for a while after first meeting of Sam, Frodo, and Gollum to others. Okay, so we got those three together, and then we immediately turn back. I think I think this must mean right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this must mean that uh the way he was thinking of the story going. So he's narrating, they come down to the angle where the breaking of the fellowship happens at the angle of the silver load and the and the Anduin, the great river. Right, the the names shift from Morthond to Silverload happens right after this, right? So let's still call it the Morthond then. Anyway, the angle, right down at the angle is where. So we have, we we have no boat trip down the Anduin. That's where the breaking of the fellowship happens. The narrative, I guess, follows Frodo. Right, he has his encounter with Boromir. He escapes with the ring. Uh, he's running away. Gollum is chasing him. Gollum catches him, and then Sam catches up with Gollum, and the two of them subdue Gollum, and then it, and then right after that, so right after, presumably the critical moment when Frodo uses the ring to daunt Gollum, that's when the narrative is now going to shift and return back to the rest of the Fellowship. Um. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, good. Good. So, let's go back to the others now. Owing to Boromir's treachery and Frodo's use of the ring, the hunt fails. So they're hunting for Frodo, can't find him. Merry and Pippin are distracted by loss of Sam and Frodo. They get themselves lost following echoes. They come to Entwash and the topless forest and fall in with Treebeard and his three giants. Whew. Okay. Legos and Gimli also get lost and get captured by Saruman. All right, let's pause before we get to Boromir and Aragorn. Boromir is the big deal, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> the top was forest. I, I can't even. Um, uh, it's good. It's just, uh, <laughs> yes, there's, <laughs> there's several of you 
<laughs> Brandon thinks that the topless forest sounds like a spring break destination. Yeah, I, I, there are so many jokes that could be made, and I'm just, I'm not. Uh, and and Karita, I don't want to hear any aunt wife jokes. I just don't. Uh, it's fine. Um, let's moving on, <laughs> moving on from the topless for the trees are really tall. That's obviously what it means because it's a forest with giants living in it. Giants don't wade through the forest, so the 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 trees are super tall. That's that's it. That's what's happening there. Um, <laughs> you, you, stop, stop, stop. I'm not going there. I'm absolutely not. Um, uh, you guys, you guys are really bad. Okay. Um, by the way, uh, the word dis- note on the word distracted. I take that. I, I take Tolkien to be using the word distracted in, like, the 19th century sense of, like, going, being distracted doesn't mean I'm trying to do something, but I keep thinking about something else, right? Being distracted means, like, I'm going to tear my hair and my clothes and run wild in the woods, right? Like, going, like, to, 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 to run distracted means to go crazy. Right. Driven to distraction. That's still the only way that we use the word still in that old sense. I'm being driven to distraction. It means like frenzy, insanity. Like, so so, so like, Mary and Pippin completely lose their marbles. When Frodo and Sam are lost, when Frodo and Sam are lost, Mary and Pippin lose it, right? And they go running off and they get themselves lost following echoes. Um, I think, by the way, Tony asks, are they fae? Indeed, they may even be fae. Um, but by the way, I think that um, we see a, we, we hear an echo of this still in the published text. Remember, it's like, it's, it's like a madness descends upon them when they all scatter and go crazy and they don't listen to, and they don't listen to Strider, right? I mean, like it's not full on distraction, right? I mean, they don't get the, they don't get the full, you know, they don't, uh, this happens to knights a lot in Arthurian stories. Like, if anyone knows Arthurian legends, you remember Sir Lancelot is, is distracted at one point, right? When uh, uh, when Guinevere confronts him with Elaine, you know, when he's slept with Elaine, and then Guinevere confronts him, and uh, and you know, he's so he's begotten Galahad on Elaine, and then Guinevere finds out and. Um, and Lancelot goes, he like strips off his clothes and runs off naked in the woods and is like a crazy wild man in the woods. This is many of the most respectable Arthurian knights do this. It's a thing that you do. Um, uh, it's, I don't think they, you know, it's the full dress or rather the full undress distraction in that sense, but, but they lose their wits, right? You know, they, and they ignore everybody else. They go running off and they get lost. Okay, so they come to the Entwash in that forest, and they fall in with Treebeard and his three giants. So Treebeard is a giant, still a giant, right? Uh, uh, and he, there, there are three other giants, so four total giants. Um, uh, yeah, and oh, Brandon, yes, I agree that you're right. Uh, the 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 fact that 
the Entwash River, right, is still the name of the river, does suggest that the word Ent is still being used in the literal Anglo-Saxon sense of giant, right? Like, I get, like, Jack and the Beanstalk giant we're thinking of here. Or, or at least, let me say, we have no evidence yet that he's thinking in any other way, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um... Yes, I realized that... <laughs> I Sorry, I realized that in talking about people stripping off all their clothes and running off naked and, and distracted into the woods, I set myself up for another round of topless forest jokes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really... I should have seen that coming. Um, <laughs> moving on, moving on. Okay, so Legolas and Gimli get lost too, and they get captured by Saruman. Notice... The idea of captured by Sauron and or his minions comes in not with Merry and Pippin, but with Legolas and Gimli, right? So that um, uh, that that um, element, right, is uh, is is there from the beginning um, that Saruman is going to be involved in the capturing, um, but that first, uh, you know, possibility here is uh, is is that it m- might be Legolas. One thing I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it kind of seems like he doesn't really know what to do with Legolas and Gimli at all, right? That seems to be one trend that we can see throughout these outlines here, is that Legolas and Gimli, he's kind of at loose ends with Legolas and Gimli. Um, so he's thinking about getting them captured by Saruman. Okay, now, on to the main event. Boromir and Aragorn, who notes a change in Boromir who is keen to break off the chase and go home, that, that is the pursuit of Frodo, right? The, uh, the chase, not the chase of the orcs, right? We're not chasing somebody who's carrying prisoners back to Isengard. I, again, I assume this means chase in the, in the Middle English sense, the hunt, right? Um, when you are hunting and following along the trail, that is, that is the chase. That's what the word chase means, right? Um, so they're hunting after Frodo. The hunt fails. Aragorn the ranger cannot succeed in tracking Frodo successfully, both because of Boromir's deception. Remember, Boromir's like, oh, he's up a tree. Remember that? And because Frodo used the ring. So those two things apparently confound Aragorn's ability to track. And uh, they... And Boromir is a dead weight on this chase. And it's apparently the two of them together, right? Boromir and Aragorn alone are involved in the chase because everyone else is gone, right? Uh, Hobbits have wandered off and been captured by uh, giants in perfectly uh, legitimate and well-clothed forests, and Legos and Gimli have possibly been captured by Saruman or maybe something else, we have no idea. Um, And uh, they get to Minas Tirith, eventually, mostly because Boromir keeps nagging, which is besieged by Sauron except at back question mark. Except at back, I assume means they're besieged from one side. There is, a, there is an approach to the city that is open, is what I assume that that means. Siege is briefly told from point of view of watchers on battlements. Notice another one of those moments where as he's giving a broad outline, he gets a sudden like flash bulb of a, of a clear scene, right? And he starts to, he, he notes it, right? The description from the point of view of watchers on the battlements Evil has now hold of Boromir, who is jealous of Aragorn. Boromir has crossed the Rubicon, 
right? He is he is he has gone over to the dark side. The, his attempt to seize the ring is him now. Uh, uh, evil has taken hold of him. Boromir is a full-on bad guy at this point. He is deliberately undermining the chase for Frodo because he wants to get back to Minas Tirith, and now here he's in. Initially, it seems probably. Um, non, you know, covert rivalry with Aragorn. Um, and then the Lord of Minas Tirith is killed, and they choose Aragorn. So they need a successor, and the people choose Aragorn to be replacement Lord of Minas Tirith. Not king. Notice the word king is not even being used here. Um, and the Lord of Minas Tirith isn't a steward. He's the Lord of the city. Uh, he is the one who has authority in, in, in Ondor. Boromir is his son, but the people don't choose him to take over for his father. They want Aragorn instead, and that absolutely cheeses Boromir off. He sneaks off, he deserts and sneaks off to Saruman to get his help in becoming the Lord of Minas Tirith. So he throws in with Saruman. Um... What I take this, by the way, and we'll see this uh, more explicitly later on, um, Tolkien imagines the siege as being two-sided, right? Sauron from the one side, Saruman from the other side. Remember in the published text, Gandalf is like, this is the worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario is we were fighting Sauron on one side and Saruman on the other side, right? Um, And... uh, um, And... In his initial concept, that's exactly what happens, right? And Boromir, now evil Boromir, is going to be the instrument for that, presumably. He goes to Saruman for help. Saruman and he form an alliance, and obviously it's all about going back to take over Minas Tirith. Um, so he's going to try to seize it with the armies of, uh, of Saruman. Um, he is almost... Uh, but Jennifer and Tony are thinking he's almost in a in a Grima worm tongue role, almost. Uh, you know, Christopher mentions this as like you know his reading of that too is like it's a like a sort of an almost foreshadowing of the Grima role, a little bit. I mean, in that clearly, like Tolkien has the idea of a collaborator, right, with Saruman. Saruman has somebody on the inside, right. Um, but Boromir is. What Boromir seems to do with Saruman seems to me very little like what Wormtongue does. Um, At no point is he going to... He's not actually going to act like a man on the inside, right? He he deserts. He he just defects to Saruman um, and asks for Saruman's assistance uh, and seems to be involved in the battle. Um, The parallel to me... We do have a precedent for this, right? Think back now for a second. Think back. Who's he like? Boromir. Yes, Matthew. My Glenn of Gondolin, right? The traitor. The bad thing, like the biggest elf bad guy. Um, yeah, I mean, my Glenn, that was really bad, right? I mean... Look, there are lots of elves who did some pretty bad things in the Silmarillion, but Maeglin is the, I mean, the betrayal of Gondolin. Really big deal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And what Boromir is doing is is sort of similar, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah. By the way, I try... It is interesting when we can see ideas coming in which seem to be like the seeds of ideas that we know are going to grow into something else, right? Like the idea that there is a there is a, a collaborator from among, you know, like a trusted person among the good guys who ends up working with Saruman, right? There is a sense in which there does seem to be like a seed of the worm tongue idea uh, in that uh, in that comparison. Um but in some ways, for me, it's more interesting to think backwards than forwards, because especially with Wormtongue, we're so far from that, right? I mean, there are some similarities, but to me, there's way more differences than similarities between Evil Boromir and Grima, right? Um, even like the Wormtonguedness, Boromir's not worm Wormtonguead, right? He doesn't have a tongue like a worm, a tongue a tongue like a worm, which means deceitful and effectively deceptive, right? Um, that's what having a worm tongue means. Um, Boromir's not worm-tongued. Um, he's just he's a jerk, right? I mean, he's unreliable. Uh, he's a turncoat. He's not, he's not, he's not a worm-tongue. Um, uh, so again, so, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's interesting to see that little seed of that one element of the worm-tongue character. But to me, especially thinking about the integration that we have seen him so actively doing with the Silmarillion tradition, it's interesting for me to see, okay, we have a model for this, right? He seems to be invoking something like the Maeglin idea here, especially with the reference to the siege, right? There was that one opening in the siege that, that the, the, the crucial element of the siege conception is that it's not, he's, they're not besieged from the back, right? Um, Boromir presumably is going to betray that back approach to Saruman to enable Saruman to besiege them from that side too. That uh, um, that's uh, something I think that we can. Uh, 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 I don't know. I mean, that's speculation, but that seems plausible. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Karita, I assume that the name Wormtongue is given to Grima by the people in Rohan who are resistant to him and what he's doing, right? Um, they they don't like him. They believe that he is a bad influence. They believe that he is deceiving the king, that he has deceived the king, um, which he has done through his speech. And so they name him the Wormtongue, right? Um, of, 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 you know, whom, uh, uh, whom all else, wh- whom all the rest call the Wormtongue, Gandalf says, right? Um, so they give him, the, his enemies give him that nickname. The people who see him as being a bad influence on Theoden give him that nickname. But notice that nickname is not just an insult. It's also a sign of respect, right? That is to say, it's, they acknowledge that he's good, at what he does, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, he may be a liar with honey on his forked tongue, um, but the comparison to a dragon, which is, of course, what worm means, um, uh, they... Um, uh, that's a, that's like a compliment. I mean, it's not a nice compliment, um, but it's it's a there's there's a certain amount of respect there. Um, and yes, Evan, you're right. Maeglin does deceive uh, King Turgon until it's uh, until it's too late. Um, 
I think that we can. So, so Evan, I, I, I see your point there. We can see in Maglin, um, the elements of, of the, of, of the worm tongue. In fact, Evan, that's a really interesting theory, right? What if Maglin is the, is the middle term, right? That is, we have Boromir here at the beginning and worm tongue, Grima at the end, right? How do you get from these, one, this, you know, that both of them allies of, um, allies of Saruman who have defected over from the good guy's side, right? How do you get from one to the other if Maeglin is the middle term, right? Who is the traitor and betrayer like Boromir, but is also worm-tongued, right? As Grima will come to be, and the counselor of the king, uh, and all that kind of thing, right? So yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that's a really interesting way to think about that. Um... Yes, and Brian, absolutely. Brian said, points out how a Maeglin is to Idril as Wormtongue is to Eowyn. Yeah, except they're not related. Um, so it's a little bit less creepy in that way. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're right. You even get that there's even the there's even the the, the sexual element there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, let's keep going. How does Gandalf reappear? Okay, so we, Gandalf needs to reappear. But how does this happen? How does Gandalf come in? So let's, let's, let's keep thinking about this. Okay. He's going to come in again, right? Uh, so this is him expanding the ideas. I love the one-chapter thing, right? Can we all agree that the one-chapter parentheses at the beginning is adorable, right? I mean, like, the idea that Tolkien thought that these things were each going to be one chapter, uh, that is just so cute. I love it. Uh, okay, one chapter. Owing to Boromir's treachery and Frodo's use of ring, the hunt fails. Aragorn is overwhelmed with grief, thinking he has failed trust as Gandalf's successor. New element, right, expanded in here. Aragorn's own emotional trauma here. Merry and Pippin are distracted by losing Sam and Frodo, and wandering far, deluded by echoes, they get lost. Merry and Pippin come up Entwash into Fangorn and have adventure with Treebeard. Treebeard turns out a decent giant. Do you get the reference? Tolkien has made a reference there. And I have, uh, the word decent, that's conspicuous, right? And I, uh, um, I spelled it out, the reference, in the subtitle of this slide. Do you remember the quote? Yeah, it's it's in the Gandalf says it in the Hobbit, right? Exactly, uh, Stephen. It's the uh, Treebeard would be the one that Gandalf would go to. Uh, Gandalf refers to finding a more or less decent giant to plug up the goblin's cave. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that friend and I, I, Tolkien has to be thinking of that line. He knows his own text and the wording of his own text too well not to, to, to use the phrase decent giant without thinking of that line. I'm sure he does. And that's revealing, isn't it? Right? That suggests the fact that Tolkien uses the phrase decent giant to describe Treebeard suggests very firmly that Treebeard is in the same kind of giant family as the stone giants of chapter four of The Hobbit. Right? Giants are a thing, they've been a thing. 
in Middle-earth. They've been a thing in Middle-earth, though, kind of on the fringes uh, from the beginning. We have references to the uh, to giants even back in the Book of Lost Tales. They never really play a big role, but they're alluded to like they, they exist. And then, of course, we get them in The Hobbit. And, uh, and now we... Uh, uh, it turns out that Treebeard is still seems to be a giant of that kind, but now he's a decent giant. So, and and this remember Tolkien already had that idea, right? Treebeard was originally a bad guy. He was the antagonist. He was maybe the one who kid who captured uh, Gandalf. He was going to be one of the dangers. Him and his forest they were going to be one of the dangers they had to pass through on their way to Mordor. Um, he's already suggested maybe he turns maybe he's he's nice after all. So okay, so Treebeard. Um, Treebeard is friendly now, but he's still not an int. He's still not a tree. Um, they tell him their tale. He is very perturbed by news of Saruman, and more so by the fall of Gandalf. He won't go near Mordor. He offers to carry them to Rohan and perhaps Minas Tirith. They set off. Okay, so... Um, yeah, Tony, it does almost sound like he wants to pay off the reference to The Hobbit, doesn't it? Um... Yeah, and uh, Tony, I, I almost wonder, is he using the phrase decent giant in his notes there because he wants to remind himself to use that phrase? Is he planning to use that phrase in the text when he gets there exactly to make the connection back to The Hobbit? I, I mean, I wonder. I, I, I could totally believe that, but we'll see. Anyway, so Treebeard's role? Transportation, right? Uh and Merry and Pippin's role, bringing Treebeard in possibly to Minas Tirith, right? So we know that he is worried about, sorry, he's perturbed about Saruman. He is very concerned about Gandalf's fall. So he's going to bring them in. So the point of Merry and Pippin running off and ending up in Fangorn is not that they're going to rouse the forest. We don't have... Great Burnham Wood to High Dunson Ain Hill coming yet. Instead, we just have Treebeard himself, Treebeard the decent giant, um, coming into the battle, presumably. Okay, fine. How does Gandalf reappear? We still have to answer that question. One chapter Boromir, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. Legolas feels the company is broken up, and Gimli has no more heart, the four part. Aragorn and Boromir to Minas Tirith, Legolas and Gimli, north. Legolas means to join elves of Lothlorien for a while. Gimli means to go back up Anduin to Mirkwood and so home. They journey together. Legolas and Gimli both sing laments. Suddenly they meet Gandalf. The fellowship is broken, right? And uh, Legolas and Gimli just go home. Gandalf. <laughs> What are we going to do with Legolas and Gimli, right? So we're not going to have them captured by Saruman anymore. We're just going to ditch them, right? Off they go. They go home. At least that's their plan, right? They set off They set off home. Um, and this makes sense as a kind of a four-way breakup. So the four of them, they've lost Frodo. They've lost the hobbits. They've lost the wizard. And the four of them are at loose ends. What do we do now? I don't know. We'll go home, I guess, right? All of them are going home. Except for Aragorn. He's going along with Boromir to Boromir's home, right? Because he, I don't know, has business in Minas Tirith, right? Um, so they split up. The quest is over, 
as far as they are concerned, from their points of view. Until suddenly they meet Gandalf with an exclamation point. Gandalf's story. Okay, okay, what's the story? Overcame Balrog. The gulf was not deep, only a kind of moat, and was full of silent water. Boy, if the Bridge of Khazad-dûm is spanning a, a gulf which only appears to be deep, but isn't actually all that deep, that's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? He followed the channel and got down into the deeps, clad himself in mithril mail, and found his way out, slaying many trolls. Okay, so Gandalf has had a bunch of adventures, right? Um, but notice the point here. Gandalf has survived. That seems to be the core idea of this version here, um, is uh, that Gandalf didn't ever die. He's fallen, like, physically, right? Toppled off the bridge. Um, but uh, he's fallen, but, but he, he, can, he can get up, right? Um, Gandalf never dies. He does beat the Balrog. He does do a bunch of swimming. He finds some cool armor, because it's, hey, Moria, right? Um, and has to... It's tough, right? He's got to fight his way through a bunch of trolls. So he's had himself a time, right? Faced a bunch of challenges. Uh, 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 probably gained several levels, but he is um, not fundamentally... Again, no death and resurrection going on here. Then, does Gandalf shine in the sun? He has a new power after overcoming of Balrog. He is now clad in white. Emphasized. Gandalf is dreadfully downcast at the news of the loss of Frodo. He hastens south again with Legolas and Gimli. The idea that Gandalf not only returns after he falls from the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, but that he returns changed, right? This seems to be the core of the... So Gandalf is going to be upgraded Gandalf when he comes back. Um, That seems to be part of the fundamental conception, right? Tolkien doesn't seem to have any plan for the mechanism for that. And it's, it's interesting to note that death and resurrection doesn't seem to be on the radar screen as one way to affect that transformation, right? Um, in some sense, he has new power after the overcoming of the Balrog. I don't know how that works or what that means. Tolkien doesn't seem to know how that works or what that means, right? That Gandalf is radiant, that he shines in the sun. Hopefully, Kate, not like a Twilight vampire. <laughs> Thank you for putting that image in my head. Um, uh, he shines. He doesn't twinkle. Um, but <laughs> Stephen Cover was thinking exactly the same thing. So there you go, Kate. It wasn't just you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he is now clad in white. Theory. This is me guessing. This is me theorizing. The flow of that, right? Gandalf shine in the sun. 
the does is a guess. Christopher Tolkien can't tell what that word is. He's guessing it might mean does, which would make grammatical sense anyway. Gandalf shine in the sun. He starts off with the image, a visual image, a snapshot, right, of when they come across Gandalf. Gandalf does not emerge out of the shadows, right? The image of Gandalf, Tolkien's image of Gandalf returned is radiant, luminous Gandalf, right? Gandalf shining in the sun. He is now clad in white, emphasized, right? He is now clad in white, underlined. Um, sounds like Tolkien figuring out what that image is, right? That he's he, for, he just, It starts with the image of radiant Gandalf, and then he's like, oh, wait, he's dressed in white now. That's why he's shining in the sun. That's what the shining in the sun is about. Now he's dressed in white. And what's the, the middle term? between those. He has a new power after overcoming of Balrog. Right? This idea that he has in some sense, and this is a terrible word to use for this, he's in some sense been promoted. Right? He's been upgraded. He's, he's, that's why I was making jokes about him, uh, uh, him going up a level. Exactly, Stephen. It does kind of sound like killing the Balrog gave him a whole big bunch of XP. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Is there some sense, as Brandon is asking, in which he acquires some of the power of the creature he destroys? There's precedent for that, Brandon, right? Remember Sigurd and Fafnir. Fafnir's blood making uh, Sigurd invulnerable to weapons. Um... Sigurd eating Fafnir's heart, which gives him the ability to understand the language of all living creatures. Um, there's precedent for a transformation of this kind happening after you defeat a very powerful enemy. I don't imagine. Um, I don't imagine. Gandalf is going to be bathing in the blood of a dead Balrog or eating the heart of the Balrog. I'm not saying either one of those things literally is what happened. But again, that concept of you defeat the enemy and the process of, you know, the, the act of defeating that enemy brings about a transformation in you um, is not an, unno- an unknown concept, right? Um, and yes, Matthew, exactly. Uh, Tolkien was playing with those very ideas with Bilbo, right? In the very first, these same kinds of outlines that he made when he was writing The Hobbit, um, and and in those early outlines, he was speculating that Bilbo kills Smaug with Sting. He envisioned exactly that. There's a set of notes in which he imagined the possibility of Bilbo having been bathed in the blood of the dragon, coming out like Sigurd and being being invulnerable. Uh, Becoming hard was the adjective, as I recall, he used in those notes. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, the being clad in white is significant, as Kate is pointing out, because, of course, Saruman has been named the white. Though remember, there was still a little bit of uncertainty about what that means. Saruman was the white And he was the head of the council, but remember, the council was like an ad hoc meeting. There, there was still not 
a clear sense of Gandalf being, or Saruman rather, outranking, being hierarchically more powerful than the wizards of other lesser colors, right? That sense still wasn't really clear in the notes that we got on the wizards before. Um, In other words, what I'm wondering is, does the logic work the other way around? Does it go like this? Flashbulb picture of Radiant Gandalf, resolving to Gandalf now dressed in white. He was the gray, now he's the white. He has gained power after overcoming the Balrog. Therefore, being the white, is that where the idea of being the white as being more powerful, of of having a greater power, a greater authority uh, over the other colors, does that concept enter here? I wonder. I wonder. If not, it, perhaps it's being sort of solidified here, at least. But we got to head back down south. All this happening still in one chapter. Um, these two things, by the way, seem kind of plausible, right? If all that happens with Merry and Pippin is they meet Treebeard and then they head south, that could be one chapter, right? If there's no Ent mood or anything like that, we just take off and go, okay, one chapter the the party deciding to split up, right, and go their separate ways, and then Legos and Gimli meeting Gandalf and Gandalf telling his story, that could be one chapter. So, so far, so good on the one chapter thing. One chapter. Inside Minas Tirith. Aragorn began to suspect Boromir at the time of the loss of Frodo. A sudden change seems to come over Boromir. He is anxious to go away home at once and not look for Frodo. That last sentence is presumably an explanation of... What the of those two sentences rather an explanation of why Aragorn began to suspect Boromir at the time of the loss of Frodo. Minas Tirith is besieged by Sauron's forces that have crossed Anduin at Osgiliath, and by Saruman who has come up in rear. See now we have explicitly Saruman coming up in that rear, which had previously been left unbesieged, right? Um, which is interesting because notice that now predates Boromir's defection, right? Boromir's desertion. So now we bring Sauron and Saruman both to the battlefield prior to evil Boromir doing his thing. There seems no hope. The uh, hopelessness being the prevailing sentiment at the battle in um, Minas Tirith is obviously a very early element, right? Evil has now got complete hold of Boromir. The Lord of Minas Tirith is slain. They choose Aragorn as chief. Oh, and yes, several of you were uh, pointing out the the sort of apparent similarities between that and the we will have King Bard, right? Except the difference is that unlike Bard, Aragorn hasn't done anything yet, right? Bard killed the dragon prior to being acclaimed as king uh, by the people of Lake Town. Um, Aragorn has just kind of come into town. I don't know what it is that leads the people of Minas Tirith to acclaim him. Is it because he's a descendant of Numenor and they're like, hey, let's, let's revisit this whole Numenorian thing? We kicked out the Numenorians before. Maybe um, maybe they would be handy now. Um, and Karita, we've been given no indication of the cause of death of the Lord of Minas Tirith. I mean, he's killed, right? doesn't die of natural causes, right? Is slain means somebody killed him, but we don't know whom or in what context. And I can only imagine, um, since it... Um, since it doesn't say that he was killed in the battle somehow, right? There's a, there's a, uh, you know, I mean, war is happening, so presumably that's, uh, that's sort of what's going on there. So, okay, again, we don't, we know, we know nothing otherwise there. Um, ah, 
Tony, very good. Oh, absolutely. Why did I think of that? Tony's a completely right. Back to the Mygwin thing, right? Boromir is Mygwin. Aragorn is Tuor, right? So Aragorn is the newcomer who comes in and is acclaimed and is welcomed by the, uh, is welcomed by the, uh, the and remember, because Mygwin was the heir. He wasn't the son, but he's the nephew. He's the, ne- he's the, he's the, the closest male heir uh, to Turgon. And of course, you know, there's Idril. But if, you know, if uh, Mygwin can, you know, work things out, you know, what I'm talking about with Idril, then, then he, you know, he would be king. All he'd have to do is off Turgon, who's of course not going to die of old age. But yes, no, exactly. The supplanting of the person who was who was next to the king prior than that, but he's just the outcomer, and and who knows about him? But there's something special about him, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the Tuor and Mygwin story again, absolutely. And then Mygwin's being led to his betrayal the more readily by the fact that yeah, 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 yeah. Very good, very good. Okay, Boromir is jealous and enraged. Uh, and by the way. I suspect that he's using the word enraged uh, in a in a sort of a more intense sense than we, you know, not just he got super mad, right? He he was he was angered, right? Um, but he's he's in a rage, right? Again, I'm thinking he's Boromir is uh, going over the top here, um, and. Brandon, great point. Uh, the, the emphasis, Brandon is laying emphasis on the fact that uh, evil completely getting hold of Boromir predates the death of the Lord of Minas Tirith and the choosing of, um, of Aragorn by the people. So that's not what causes him to let the evil into his heart. It was, of course, trying to take the ring from Frodo where that happened. Okay, he deserts and sneaks off to Saruman, who's right there, right, his army, besieging Minas Tirith, seeking his aid in getting lordship. Okay, all right. That sounds like a pretty fat chapter. At this point, the siege must be broken by Gandalf, with Legolas and Gimli, and by Treebeard. But not too much fighting, or it will spoil last battle of Gorgoroth. Because remember, they got a fight over in Gorgoroth, with the Nazgul, leading the armies out, while Frodo is going up Mount Doom. Right, still happening. Gandalf might simply walk through lines, or else have a contest with Saruman. Treebeard walks through. They see a huge tree walking over plain. They see a huge tree walking over plain. This seems to me the first glimpse, the first inkling that Treebeard might become a tree. Now, I'm not convinced that this means he's fully Entish already, right? Um, again, this strikes me as one of those flashbulb images that Tolkien get uh, gets as he's imagining the story. Um, seeing the giant walk over the plain to the battlefield and how much taller he is than everybody else um, could look to maybe a person from the battlement like a tree walking across the plain. I don't think it necessarily means he is an ent and has the form of a tree, but certainly we're closer to that than we've ever been, right? I mean, again, he's still pretty close to being a decent giant, right? So, uh, but but still, that which is more than a seed. It, this is not just a seed of of Treebeard's entishness, right? This is a this is this is a full sapling, right? We're 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 coming well along here. Saruman shuts himself up in Isengard. Notice what else is happening here. Um, we're abandoning maps, right? 
Saruman is presumably there, right? At Minas Tirith, besieging it. But then after Gandalf and Treebeard come in and somehow turn the tide of battle, but it's not really clear how, Gandalf may just disregard them and walk right in to Minas Tirith. Um, he may confront Saruman and Saruman retreat back to Isengard. Treebeard's going to come in and we don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to look impressive doing it, right? Coming in across the plain. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, it, it's... When he's thinking through a story like this, he really doesn't seem to think in map terms at all. Um, <laughs> Brandon points out that uh, the original plan seems to be for Gandalf simply to walk through the forces of Mordor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, kind of, that kind of is the plan there, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Anyway, all right. Um, Sally from Minas Tirith. So we're going we're gonna to sally forth with Gandalf, because Gandalf has joined them. Gandalf drives the Black Riders back and takes the crossing of Anduin and Osgiliath. So we're going to charge out of the city. That's going to be... The, so the, the, the turning of the tide is Gandalf's arrival. His arrival is going to be uh, the turning of the tide, but it's not itself going to be a dramatic event. Like, he's not going to... He doesn't drive the... Or he doesn't break the siege upon arrival. He gets into the city. And then presumably leads them in a sally forth, and they uh, uh, he drives back the black riders, and that's when now they break the siege. Horsemen ride behind him to Gorgoroth. See, this is this the Rohirrim? I don't think so. Horsemen of Minas Tirith, presumably, who sallied out of the city with him, right? Um, I assume so. Which means. Those horsemen with their horns in the hills over at Gorgoroth might not have been the Rohirrim, right? He seems to be wanting to get the horsemen, the horsemen of Minas Tirith, that is, to Gorgoroth in time for that last battle with the Nazgul, right? Um, when Frodo's on the cracks of doom. Um, yes, Josiah, it does sound more like the precursors of the precursors of Imrahil and the Knights of Dol Amroth. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Okay, uh, here a great wind and sea flames out of Fire Mountain. So here we're, we're setting up for the great wind, I assume, like the vultures, right, with the Black Riders. And uh, uh, the, the, so we're, we're, we're up to the cracks of doom. We're bringing the stories together here. Somehow or other, Frodo and Sam must be found in Gorgoroth, possibly by Merry and Pippin. If any one of the hobbits is slain, it must be the cowardly Pippin doing something brave. For instance... And then he breaks off his notes. Ah, oh, we never will know what Pippin might have done, what the cowardly Pippin might have done while dying, apparently. Um, I know, seems harsh, Nancy, doesn't it, the cowardly Pippin? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. But, um, yeah, Carson, I'm thinking it was probably more, it was probably more significant than killing a troll. Right, because um, he's talking about like how so none of the hobbits are going to die, but if any of them do die, it should be Pippin, and if Pippin dies, it should be doing something uncharacteristically brave, and I can't imagine it's just fighting a troll in the battle lines, right? Um, 
I know yet several of you are objecting to this harsh review of Pippin's character. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Josiah says, a poor, uh, a fool, if a momentarily brave fool, he would remain. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ooh, Tony says maybe he's going to do the Witch King thing. Maybe the, for instance, is going to be killing one of the Nazgul, right? Maybe, yeah. Brian was just thinking the same thing. It could be a seed of that, uh, the confrontation between uh, a hobbit uh, and uh, a Nazgul. Remember, there was even, there was another seed of that earlier on. Remember, Sam was going to fight back the vultures, right? So the winged Nazgul were descending and Sam was going to beat them off and then chuck himself and Gollum into the crack of doom. So, um yeah, the idea of a hobbit opposed, you know, standing up to a, uh, one or more of the Nazgul uh, is is that's been an idea that's planted. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and yes, Brianna, here is the seed of Tolkien wanting Pippin to grow as a character in the specific way of being brave. See, Brianna is looking at the 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 silver lining here, right? Not just uh, not just bristling over him being called cowardly. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. We're out of time. That's fine. That's fine. This was a, this was good. This was good progress. I am content. Um, we still have a couple things to finish up, but it's quicker. And then we'll spend the whole next time on, on, I'm going to try to cover both of the Lothlorien chapters, uh, next time. So next week we get the emergence, um, uh, we get the emergence of Galadriel, right? Uh, so it's just a big moment. And I'm glad not to, I'm just as glad not to squeeze the emergence of Galadriel into the last, you know, five minutes of, uh, uh, of a, of a session. So we'll, we'll, we'll really focus on that next time. So, all right, very good. Thanks everyone for joining me and I will see you guys again next week. Thank you for remembering the later time. We'll be meeting at 10 o'clock, uh, from now on, on Wednesday nights. Um, that seemed to work out all right. So thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.